This message entitled, Who Is That Guy? was delivered to Christ of Rock Bible Church on February 25th, 2024 by the Reverend Roy D. Warren Jr. The scripture reference is Matthew 16, 13 to 21 and Matthew 17, 1 to 13. Father, I want to thank you, dear God, that you have put us on a pathway in this Lenten season. We see it pictured in our sanctuary with a path that makes it through the various events that lead up to the cross and the resurrection. But we also know, dear God, that as we allow you to speak these various stories into our hearts, you're also presenting us with a pathway. You're also showing us, dear God, which way to go, which direction to head, and why. And I want to thank you for that, dear God, because otherwise we're just playing games. And Lord, that's one thing we're not doing here, dear God, is playing games. You are intending to put us on a path with you in our hearts, with you in our lives, with you in our, even in our bodies, and go the way that not only you went or the way you go, but the way that you are, who you are. Tozer, I believe, said it best when he said, purity and holiness. And I thank you for that, Lord. And I do pray, dear God, now open up this truth before us. Help us, dear God, to always find you in uh, in every word that we're looking at, see how this all fits together, and we'll give you the glory. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I think before I actually get started into the message, I, want, I do want to share with you a little bit about what's right here before us in chapter 16. And then when we get to chapter 17, then we'll just... Let the message speak it. Okay? Praise God. Chapter 16. Oh, my goodness. Where were we? Chapter 10 last time, huh? Boy, there's several chapters here, and there's all kinds of stuff. I told the people in the nursing home, I said, you know, why don't you go ahead and, uh, and read from 10 to 16, and you know, through the week? Just pick a day and do that chapter, do this chapter, and do another and uh, I imagine probably some will. Uh, I don't know how, um, you know, often they uh, get their Bibles out. I can't tell you that. Um, there's one or two that actually bring them, but, but most of them don't even bring them. And I don't know whether that's just from the way they were raised. And when they went to church, they didn't bring their Bibles. When they went to Sunday school, they didn't bring their Bibles. Or, or what? I don't, I don't know. Um, but... Uh, I do know that there are at least two or three that do have it with them, and they turn to where we're at and uh, how well they can follow along, you know, with their health issues that they're having and so forth. I couldn't tell you. But anyway, I'm uh, thankful that they are uh, coming to hear about it all. And uh, I'm going to, I might even ask them next week about, you know, how many did you, did you actually make it through some of these chapters and look to see. 
mostly it's looking to see things we didn't talk about. Okay, I mean, I went through and I told him the different stories about the. I told him, I said, even just last year, we talked about the Jesus walking on the sea and the feeding of the 5,000. And so those stories we've already looked at and talked about and so forth. But then there's a whole bunch of them that are the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the, of the uh, um, I think it's right after that, yeah, the tares and, well, there's a mustard seed. And about the leaven and the tares explained and the parable of the net and the parable of the hidden treasure and so forth and so on. There's lots and lots of things here, but there's just no way we can, we can do it all when we only have a few times to, uh, to gather. So we're jumping ahead, and I want us to see something that's in chapter 16 first, and that will lead us into 17, okay? I'll start back up at verse 13. Now... This, I'm sharing this before we get to the actual message. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Who do people say I am? And they said, Well, some say that you're John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had just been killed before this, so it's going to be... John the Baptist come back to life. But then the others that they mentioned, like Elijah and Jeremiah, they've been dead for centuries, okay? Then, or some other prophet. There's lots of things that people think that he is. But then he said unto them, he said, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Practically word for word, what the angel told Mary before he was ever born. This holy thing that is within you is going to be the son of God. So he's not just a prophet, and he's not just a teacher, and he's not just a miracle worker. He is divine. He is God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. This is heavenly sent. Okay? And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, and there's a play on words in there, because Peter comes from the Greek word Petra or Petras, and it does mean a rock or a stone. Okay? So he says, you're going to be the rock. Peter, because his name meant that. You see how that's, he probably smiled at him when he said it, because it's like, right? You understand what I'm saying, Peter? I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. He didn't want it just going out willy-nilly. He didn't want it to go out without people having to truly deal with it and, and experience it. He didn't just want people, well, Jesus said that he was this and he was that and so forth. No, 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 no. 
No, he wanted people to truly see him for who he is and to experience him. So he told his disciples, don't tell anybody about this, okay? And then verse 21, and that might be just as far as I really need to go with this uh, pre-scripture uh, reading. Look at verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. This is the first time in his ministry that he's making this clear, where he's making this conspicuous, where he's making it obvious. He comes right out with it. From this time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem, suffer many things of the religious leaders, and be raised again the third day. And Peter did not take it well. Peter did not take it well. In fact, what he did is he took Jesus. Now, the Greek word that's used here is prolambano, okay? And I'll show you this more specifically a little later. But it's took him. It's, it's almost like, he, I'm not saying he did grab Jesus by the shoulders, but it's, it's like we would picture this word, okay? To grab Jesus by the shoulders and shake him. No, I'm not gonna let this happen. You are not gonna die. Of course, Peter's not hearing anything about this resurrection. And by the way, we'll see that when we get closer and closer to Easter. Nobody saw it. Nobody got it. The disciples didn't get it at first. You know what it took? It took meeting him. That's right. It took meeting him. And I think it takes that for us too. But I've told you before, don't, don't, don't think that I'm talking about he's going to all of a sudden just show up here and we're going to get to meet him. No, I'm talking about to see him with the heart. Okay? I'm not talking about the eyes. They, what, the disciples... Mary and some women went and saw the tomb and it was empty. They didn't know anything about him being raised from the dead at that first point, okay? And the disciples, they didn't believe it when they were told it. In fact, you read the Gospel of Mark and you see if anybody believed it. I'm serious. You see if anybody believed it. They didn't believe this. They didn't believe that. They didn't believe this other part. They didn't believe the... The, uh, the other thing, it, you know, they, because they needed to meet him raised from the dead. And it's the same way with us. And like I said, I'm not talking about that he's going to come here because he's not. He may show up in a dream. He might show up in a vision that you'll have. But he's sitting at the right hand of the Father praying for the church. He's not down here. Okay? It's the Holy Spirit that is down here. Okay, so you're not going to, unless like I say, you have, and people have had dreams, and people have had visions. There's many, many uh, people that had been involved in Islam that have seen Jesus in this way, and they turn to him 
forsake their false religion and come into the truth. Okay? So Jesus can do that if he wants to, but it's not like he's going to come here and just sit here and we're going to get to meet them all. And, you know, and say, I met Jesus today. You know, not, that's not that. It's not that physical. Okay? It's meeting him with the heart. Okay? Praise the Lord. Glory be to God. Uh, I'll let the rest of that go for now. Um, I, just, I just wanted to show you that in 16, and by the way, this is called the uh, watershed. I could not think of that the other day when I was trying to tell somebody. This is called the watershed moment. It's speaking of the summit. You ever get to, where is it, near Shalakta or something? Up on 422, and, and there's a sign there that says, you have reached the summit of that particular incline. <laughs> okay? Then it goes down, up and down. Okay? You've reached the summit. Well, it's that watershed moment. If it rains there, water goes this way, water goes this way. It's, that's what it's talking about. Okay? Well, in spiritually speaking, though, the watershed moment is where Jesus manifests himself, reveals himself. Makes it obvious, makes it clear, makes it conspicuous. Okay? Praise the Lord. And that's what 16 is, chapter 16. It's that, it's called, that's what it's called, the watershed moment. Okay? Peter's confession and Jesus making it clear that he is who he is. Amen? And then in verse 21, it just takes it all the way with it. From that time forth, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the religious leaders and be killed and be raised again the third day. You know, and then Peter, of course, yeah. Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Jesus is telling him himself what's going to happen. But he's so focused on the physical and here I am and I'm your best buddy Jesus and I'll protect you you'll see I won't let anything happen to you all right who is that guy who is that guy well, <clears throat> there was a wealthy businessman. He hosted a spectacular party uh, in his backyard uh, with his uh, built-in swimming pool, in-ground swimming pool, in which he filled his swimming pool with some salt water, added the salt to make it like ocean water, and he put in a whole assortment. Now, where he got his hands on all this stuff, I couldn't tell you. Um, actually, it's not probably a real true story. <laughs> By the way, that's what Jesus told all the time. His parables, his other stories and so forth that he told. There's only a couple of them people think were actually true, like the one about Lazarus. You know, Lazarus going up to heaven and being, you know, and dealing with the rich man and all that kind of stuff because he had a name. None of the other parables give a name for the people involved. He was telling he was giving illustrations. He was giving them stories of things and uh, situations and people and so forth. Anyway, wealthy businessman uh, hosted a spectacular party. He filled his swimming pool with uh, a whole assortment of sharks, barracuda, 
even had an octopus and, and some other dangerous fish and sea creatures. Looking for a rather graphic display of, for entertainment and, and certainly excitement, he announced to his guests that he would like to invite any of them to try to swim across the pool with all this in the pool. Okay? And he said this. He said, to the person successfully swimming the length of the pool, I offer a first prize choice of either a new home in the mountains a trip around the world or a large share in my business. He didn't say what percent, he just said large share. <laughs> no sooner had the businessman announced the prize selection when a large splash was heard and a man swam very rapidly across the infested waters and bounded up out of the pool onto the uh, cement deck. That was a stunning performance, young man, the millionaire told the dripping swimmer. Do you know which prize you want? And the fellow said, right now, I don't really care about the prize. I just want to get the name of the turkey who pushed me in. Now, I certainly hope that's not a true story. I doubt very much that it is. But it does make a point, okay? If, if it had been real, I'm sure everyone gathered would have wondered, who is that guy, right? Who is that guy? Who, who would do that? Who would risk it? Who would jump in and swim fast and jump back out? And by the way, I, I can picture how you do that. I mean, I can picture. Because they, they're, the, they're down there. Lurking around, you know. I mean, you see it all the time. If you've seen any shows about sharks or whatever, they're just, you know, looking around. I think you, and, and they probably take a little bit of time to, yeah, that looks like food, you know. And go ahead and grab onto it or any of those other creatures, the barracuda, I don't know how fast they swim. But I would imagine if you really dove in and hightailed it across the water and jumped right back out again, you could probably do it. I said you could probably do it. Who is that guy? Now, even if the story, being fictitious, um, Uh, I mean, even now, and you're thinking, okay, that didn't really happen. It's not really true. But aren't you, aren't you thinking, you know, who is that guy? I mean, wait a minute. Who is that guy? Who, who, would, who would take the chance? Who would do it? Yes, I think, I think, oh, by the way, if you thought you could make it, and in you go, and you're swimming across, and so forth, what if you don't? You're done. <laughs> okay? All right. I think with every story that we see in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, we will most likely be asking the same question. Exactly who is that guy? 
Who is this Jesus? Because there are people thought all kinds of things. Remember, Jesus even asked them, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, you know, some people say John the Baptist, and some say Jeremiah, some say Elijah, etc. As we approach the suffering and the death, and especially the resurrection of Jesus, we must absolutely know in the depths of our hearts his identity. We must know who he really is. He isn't just a good teacher. He isn't just a prophet. He isn't just these things that people think he is. Even today, you'll ask people, you know, well, who do you think he was? And Well, I think he was a pretty good guy, you know. And, you know, you'll get answers like that. It's got to be bigger than that. It's got to be deeper than that. We must know his identity. And that's why we're taking the time to go through some of the stories that make their way through the season of Lent to see who he said he was, to see who he really is. We've already done some of that. We've already seen some of the stories back before chapter 10 and, uh, you know, back into 9 about the healing of the paralytic and, and the cost of following Jesus and, uh, and, and several of these other things. Uh, save to do God's will, the, the wise and the foolish builders. We, we've already hit some of that stuff, okay? We've got a few more weeks of Lent. Praise God. John 3.16, you know, you know it well. You know what it says. Well, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, as we make our way, and we're already partially through the gospel, and then we come to this watershed moment where, you know, he starts to make it obvious and conspicuous, starts to actually talk about his suffering and his death, and he hadn't done that before, okay? But now he's, he's starting into it. Uh, now it's going in a, in a sense, in another direction. He's trying to make it clear so that when they, when they get to it in the first place, they won't be at a loss, you know? Because they were at a loss. I mean, really. Mary Magdalene was, you know, what am I going to do? You know, he's dead. You know, sees this guy in the garden outside the tombs and so forth. You know, if you've taken him away, show me where you took him and I'll carry him back and we'll, we'll do the burial properly or whatever. She's not looking for a risen Lord. She's not, you know, and yet Jesus had been since halfway through his ministry, he's been talking about being killed and being raised again, resurrection. But they're not going to get it until they see him. And I'll prove it. When we get closer to Easter, I'll show you. Okay? They do not believe until they actually see him. And what I'm saying is, we can see him now if we'll open up our hearts. I'm not talking about your eyes. I'm Because he's not here. He's in heaven. But if it's the heart, then we can see him. Okay? As we make our way through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, we've already come some distance, but we've got some more to go, it has been increasingly clear just exactly who and what he is. And I think everything has been to the glory of God. In Matthew 16, we see the very first time 
that Jesus started to say something about it. Hadn't mentioned it before. The very next thing that occurs, of course, is chapter 17. All right. Okay, so if you have to flip a page, flip a page, but go to 17. And the very first shot out of the box, the very first thing that happens in 17 is the transfiguration. And it begins this way. First couple verses. Look at it. I'm in chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. First couple verses. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, referring to James's brother, okay? So all three of these disciples, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, away from everybody else, okay? And was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was as white as the light. I mean, who is this guy? Seriously, who is this guy? All of a sudden, his face is shining like the sun, and his clothes are as white as light. Now, when you see a movie <laughs> that's about the life of Jesus and or aspects of Jesus' life, or whatever. When it comes to the transfiguration, after the transfiguration, before the transfiguration, his clothes were kind of dingy. In the movie. How else can they show it? He's got these, old, these clothes, and they're dirty, and they're, you know, they're dusty, and they're beige. Okay? <laughs> Tan. All right? Not very bright at all. But once the transfiguration happens... He's got new clothes on. Okay? It's just as bright as, as bright as they can get white, which I think was even brighter, by the way, than what these movies can come up with. The whole thing, I don't know about for you, but reminds me of the resurrection itself. The transfiguration reminds me of resurrection life. I think it's very compelling. First of all, notice what it really means when he takes these three followers up the mountain with him. In the Greek, the word is, and I sort of half mentioned this a little earlier, was prolambeno, okay? A very strong taking. Lambeno, of course, is the word for taking, okay? But put the pro on the front and it's like strong, very strong. So like I said, it's kind of like picturing, you know, Jesus has these three guys, and he's going to show them life itself. He's going to show them God. Okay? Literally referring to them taking, for him, Jesus taking them near to himself. That's what the word means. That's how strong it is. Okay? literally referring to taking them near to himself. And that would be extremely purposeful, as you'll see. Okay? So, the word transfigured in the original language is metamorpho. All right? You've heard this before. I'm sure our young people could tell us what that's all about. You're, hey, Ben, you still there? What do you think metamorpho means? Just basically. 
Huh? Metamorphosis. What do you think of when you think of metamorphosis? Huh? Transformation. Specifically, you're thinking about the, the uh, caterpillar that wraps himself up and gets in a cocoon and so forth. And before you know it, it comes out a bright, colorful butterfly. I'm thinking of the monarch butterfly in particular. Okay? That's, where the word, that's how the word is used. It, it indicates a proceeding from within. No longer a caterpillar. It's been changed physically and goopily changed. Because you know, for that caterpillar to turn into something else, it's got to become goop. And that's what's in its body. That's what's inside its skin is goop. Caterpillar goop. Okay? And then he comes out and he's got a smaller body and it's not so goopy. Okay? And then he's got these wings. And, you know, the monarch, you know, bright colors, just incredible. And then, of course, you see all kinds of other butterflies, but it's the same thing. The butterfly comes out of the cocoon, uh, a definite change of place and condition. That's what it's talking about. A definite change of place and condition. And there is yet another similarity, I believe, to the resurrection story. And that's found in verse 3. Look at that. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Wow. Wait a minute. Is that the Moses from the book of Exodus? Is that Elijah from later on in the Old Testament, but still a lot of years back? Okay. So our natural question would be, what about? What were they talking about? Well, another gospel goes into a little more, more detail on this and specifically says they talked about his upcoming demise. Talking to Jesus about the cross and about suffering, dying, and eventually, because we're talking butterflies here, rising again. Okay? It's not, it, I, I, I can't say exactly, you know, has, had this been kept from Jesus or are they just sharing it amongst themselves? Old Testament, New Testament, coming together and here's what's going to happen, you know? Because Jesus seems to know so much about everything that's going on, you know, I think they're just talking about it. And now both of these men, Old Testament prophets, they were, not Jesus, but the other two. And long since deceased, they're, they've been gone for a while, all right? But now they're obviously alive. <laughs> Something's happened, and I want to suggest to you, I wonder if it isn't resurrection life, all right? It sounds like resurrection life to me. In fact, speaking metaphorically, uh, Moses is representing the law because he's the one that went up on Mount Sinai, got the Ten Commandments, came back down, and, and, and gave the people everything else that God said about what they were supposed to be doing. That's the part I'm reading about now. I just am finishing up with it as I'm reading through the Bible. And all these very, very specific expectations that God has about communal life and so forth. He represents the law. 
which is being fulfilled by this transfiguration of this Jesus. The law is being fulfilled because at this very time, because Jesus is now not the guy in the, in the dirty uh, tunic. Now he's just as bright as could be. I mean, his, his face shines like the sun. Can you imagine? You won't, would you even be able to look at him? You know, that was the problem they had with Moses, right? After he had already seen God up on top of the uh, Mount Sinai, you know, he's glowing, he's shining. And so he wore a veil over his face, you know, to, to keep that part hidden so people didn't get blinded by this thing. And it's, it's a kind of the similar thing with Jesus here, you know. Who is this guy that this, these things can be happening? Well, clearly, he is the fulfillment of everything that had led up to him, okay? And Elijah, he's a picture of the prophetic voice, okay? He's a picture of the prophetic voice that had been sounding all through history, not just Elijah in his number of years that he had on the earth, but he's a picture of all of prophecy. Okay, now clearly, obviously, conspicuously. And so as it turns out, all of a sudden, Peter has an idea. Okay, fourth verse. Look at the fourth verse. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. <laughs> Did Peter ever, ever, declare such a true thought in his life as this, it is good that we are here. On the other hand, <laughs> then he starts talking about how we ought to build three tabernacles. We ought to build three um, huts. We ought to build three tents. Okay? The Bible calls them tabernacles. Uh, let us make uh, here three tabernacles one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. In other words, he's expecting this to go on and that they could all stay up there and this could be life for them, okay? But I want you to notice what he said before he said that. After he said, it's good for us to be here, he said, Jesus, if thou wilt. In other words, Jesus, your will be done. Whatever you want. I got this idea, Jesus. We could build these tents. We could build these tabernacles. and You could have this one and that could be the other one and, and another one and we'll just all stay up here, okay? But it's if thou wilt. Thank God Peter was not really taking over and saying what we should do and, and that, you know, we're gonna, I'm gonna do it. I don't care what you say, Jesus. I'm gonna do this. I'm going to grab, gather up some lumber over there and we're going to, we're going to build these, these huts, these booths, okay? He was leaving it up to Jesus, if thou wilt. Now, there is something even more amazing that happens immediately afterwards, okay? While he yet spake, okay, while Peter was yet explaining this stuff, okay, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold a voice out of the cloud 
which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. In other words, Peter, what you just said, this is a good idea. Not the booths, but if thou wilt. What is the will of Jesus on this thing? It's an amazing thing. This is the same thing, actually, that happened at the baptism of Jesus. Same event, same message, different time. That's what happened. There was this cloud, and this voice comes down out of the cloud, and who's talking out of the cloud? It's God. It's God the Father. And he says, this is my beloved son. It's the same thing. Okay? In other words, it's all one story. It has all one meaning. It's all one God. Amen? It is all one salvation. Praise God. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? Who could elicit this kind of response? Who... Who is he that he could be right there below this cloud and the voice is pointing right at him? <laughs> this is my beloved son. Right? It's, a, it's the same thing that happened at the baptism. He can't just be a pretty good teacher. There are people today, you ask them who Jesus is, well, I think he was probably, he probably was a good teacher, you know. He was, and he did some miracles. He was probably a good miracle worker, you know. He can't just be a powerful prophet. No way. He can't. That wouldn't cut it. That wouldn't do it. This guy is God. Amen? This guy is God. Clearly, obviously, and conspicuously. And this isn't the only story in the whole gospel account or any of the gospel accounts that says so. It's not like you could pick it out and say, well, he was wrong about that. You know, no. Clearly, obviously, conspicuously. But it turns out the followers of Jesus are scared to death. And when the disciples heard it, they felt, they heard this voice. This is my son. It's God. And he's pointing down to Jesus. This is my son. This is God's son. Okay? Now guess who knew that before the disciples did? Mary. The mother of Jesus. Remember? The angel came to her and said, that holy thing that is going to be born of you, that's the son of God you got in there. All right? And when the disciples heard it, it says here that they fell on their face. And I think that's kind of interesting. Isn't that the same thing that's said when the two go to Emmaus after the resurrection? Right? And, and they, you know, they, they use the personal pronoun, singular pronoun for talking about both their hearts. Did not our heart, remember that? Did not our heart, they don't say hearts. Better grammar would have been, did not our hearts, you know, but because they have the same heart, 
he can talk about it in the singular, right? Same thing goes on here. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face. Not faces. Now, faces would be plural. It would be more correct grammatically. But there's a spiritual picture going on here. They got the same face. They got the same presence. They fell on their face and were sore afraid. Now watch. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. What's the one thing the angels always had to say when they showed up and revealed themselves, manifested themselves, showed themselves clearly and conspicuously and obviously to people? What'd they have to say? Don't be afraid. These are not cute little cupids running around, you know, with a little bit of sash over their mid parts. And they got their little bow and arrow and they're shooting people. You know, Valentine's Day. That's not what this is. They must have been awesome to see. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. That's right. Moses was gone. Elijah was gone. Save Jesus only. Jesus is the only one left. My, this guy is something else. He is the embodiment of purity, holiness, righteousness. And that's not just because he was a a good guy. (laughs) He was God. Amen? He's divine. Holiness and purity. A.W. Tozer, he put it this way, and this is what we put in the paper this past week. The Bible specifically commands us to follow holiness. It is, to our const, it is to be our constant thought. The holiness of God is the moral quality of God. This is a little more familiar, a little more understandable, and not quite so terrifying to the soul. We are drawn as true Christians to that which is pure. God's nature is unspeakably pure, sinless, spotless, immaculate, stainless, and an absolute fullness of purity that words can never express. God is a holy God. This is all A.W. Tozer. God is a holy God. You can always be sure. Now watch this. And I mentioned this Friday night, so maybe it'll sound a little familiar. You can always be sure that God is all right. A-L-L-R-I-G-H-T. All right. That can be the very basis of all you're thinking about God. God is all right. God is holy. God is pure. The horrible travesty we have in America today, and he's writing back, what, 1950s? Yeah, he died in the 60s, so had to be before that. We have in America today is Christianity, 
without holiness. Now, I want you to notice something. I didn't go into it just then, but I sort of did. All right, A-L-L-R-I-G-H-T. He does not use the word all right, A-L-R-I-G-H-T. That would be like if you're talking about somebody who was running along on a path, they tripped on a stone or a stick and they fell. Maybe they scraped their knee a little bit or whatever, but it turns out they were all right. That would be spelled A-L-R-I-G-H-T, just one L and all one word. Generally, that's the way it's done. This latter spelling can refer, as I said, to somebody just, you'd think maybe they got hurt, but they didn't, so they're all right. The former spelling, the other one, A-L-L-R-I-G-H-T, means to be completely right, like God. In other words, there's no wrong in him. Didn't Jesus say, Satan has no part in me? At one point, sure he did. He's completely right. There's no wrong in him at all. That's why it's spelled A-L-L, separate word, R-I-G-H-T. He's all right. Not just okay. <laughs> you know, skinned his knee, but it'll get better. No, it's not that at all. There's no wrong in him. There's a big difference there between these two things. And Tozer uses the A-L-L-R-I-G-H-T. Now remember that our text said, what, what it said just a little while ago, it talked about Jesus' face being as bright as the sun, while his clothes were as white as light. And then when Peter wanted to take the whole thing in a different direction, you know, let's get a hold of some lumber, let's get over to Busy Beaver and get some, you know, and, some screws and so forth and we'll go ahead and we'll build these tents or these tabernacles, these booths, okay? How about we do that? If you will, Jesus. If you will. When Jesus, when Peter rather, wanted to take it in a different direction, we saw a bright cloud overshadow them. Now, have you ever heard of that before? And I want to tell you, before you get a half a chance to answer, yes, you have. <laughs> I can prove it. <laughs> All right? Yes, you have. You heard it at Christmas time. Okay? When the angel was explaining to Mary who this little guy was, it says, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. There it is. We saw that at Christmas. Therefore, also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Praise the Lord. We're talking divinity. We're talking God. So, it was back at his birth, and even before his birth, when Mary was told about it. It happens right now during his ministry. And it's right now too. Right now, in our lifetime, this is who God is. He overshadows. It is the power, and this is what it means. It's by definition, this is what that overshadowing means. It is the power of the divine and its influence resting upon you. 
That's what it is. That is overshadowing. So don't forget, when God gives direction in his word, he is not really, in a, in a very real sense, and I'm going to be real clear about this because I don't want this to be misunderstood. He's not really prohibiting you, okay, from being bad. He'll tell you what's good and right and bad and wrong and all of that kind of stuff, but prohibiting in the sense of stopping you from doing it, you know, that's not it. And, and by the way, he doesn't force you to, be the, to do the good stuff either. See, the point is, everybody was given free will. I've said this a couple weeks ago, I said this, and we need to get real clear about this. Everybody's got free will. If you choose to use that will, that free will, against him, then you will be wrong. Whether you like it or not, you're going you're gonna to be wrong. But if you choose to use your free will for his purposes, then and only then will you be right. Even all right. All right? If, if you don't care if you are wrong before God, then go ahead. Be wrong. And I've said this just as plain as day in the past. And and. I think we need to hear it clearly, really hear it clearly. You know, you don't care about being right before God, then go ahead and do the wrong stuff. Now, he doesn't want you to do that, you understand. That's why he tells you this is good and this is bad. You know, choose ye this day. You know, if you don't care if you are wrong before God, then go ahead. Go ahead, be wrong. It's up to you. God, of course, wants you to be right. He wants you to use your will for his purposes, but you do have free will. Many today speak of God prohibiting this and prohibiting that and so forth, but that's not really what's going on because he's not going to stop you. Who's going to try to get you to see the light, so to speak? And maybe that's why he came as light. He came as the sun. His clothes came as white. Okay? I know there are rights and there are wrongs. Of course we understand that. But God is not going to force you to do one or the other. He wants you to. He wants you to follow his way and not the ways of the world or the ways of Satan or whatever. But the fact is, everybody's got free will. And you can't be his puppet. Now listen to this. You can't be his puppet either way. He's not going to move his marionette to get you to be right. And he's not going to move his marionette to get you to be wrong. Either way. Because, quite frankly, where is the love in that? He wants you to choose love. He wants you to choose right over the wrong. He wants you to choose his way of thinking and not the world's. So he puts it before you. He'll give it to you. Here's this way and there's this way. But now you've got to choose it. You've got to, you've got to decide what you're going to do. And 
He has to give pre- he has to give people free will because if he doesn't, then he's making people love him, and that's not what God does. All right. Take a look at the last couple of verses, <clears throat> verse nine in particular. Right now, we'll get to the rest of it in in a minute. Okay, and and we're going to close with this. And as they came down from the mountain. Jesus charged them saying, tell the vision to no man. Gosh, that sounds familiar. I think he told the disciples not to tell, any, tell, them, tell anybody else anything about the transfiguration because they have to experience it. You can't just hear about it. Okay? All right? So tell the vision to no man, he says, until the Son of Man, be risen again from the dead. And I'll show you, when we get closer to Easter, I I can show you right out of the Bible, it actually says that. It it, it says that. Okay? And the reason a lot of people were not believing is they hadn't met him yet. Heard about it. You know? But that's not really enough. They need to meet him. And I believe he probably meant to not even tell the other disciples. Seems to me if he wanted all the other disciples to know about this thing, this transfiguration, seems to me he would have taken everybody with him. But he took these uh, three people who are kind of, what do you want to say, possibly more spiritual than the rest. I'm not necessarily saying they were okay but I think it's gonna just to tell them about it and not for them to see it it's gonna confuse anybody who's less spiritual okay and that might be why he only took the three do you remember when he went in to um, raise Jairus's daughter from the dead who do you take in the room with them? The mom, the dad, and these three. Not the whole group. All right? Once the resurrection actually takes place, even in our hearts, we in reality see Jesus. Usually we think of the word see and we think about our eyeballs. So I'm not talking about eyeballs, okay? The blindest person in the world, you know, with no use of his eyes, can see Jesus better than a lot of people because it's an experience, okay? So it's not just hearing about him. Then and only then does it make any sense at all. It's got to be having seen him and having known him as raised from the dead, okay? That's what we're talking about. That's, what, that's why he did it. For that is when his resurrection life can truly live in us. Now, what about these last few verses? Well, look at it. Verses 10, 11, and 12. Look at it. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? Why? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly shall come first. And restore all things. 
But I say unto you, now listen, but I say unto you that Elijah is come already. And I'm not talking about back in Old Testament days. I'm talking about right then. Elijah had already come and they knew him not. And they did whatever they wanted to do to him. Whatever they listed, it says in the King James. Whatever they listed, whatever they thought they should do to this fellow. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. In other words, what this other man experienced, I'm going to experience some of that too. Namely, death. Okay? So who is this guy that Jesus is telling them about? The one who was already pointing the way. The one who had already come. The Elijah that had already come and they decided to do what they wanted to do to him and they killed him. It's John. John the Baptist. Jesus' own cousin. Remember? Elizabeth was Mary's cousin. So... They're cousins. Okay? John the Baptist. Amazing who this Jesus is. Isn't it? Amazing. Who is this guy? Well, I think he makes it pretty clear. But you got to know him. Amen? You've got to meet him in his resurrected state, so to speak. And that's why nobody, I mean nobody, understood what was going on when they said, you know, Jesus is alive. They didn't get it. Because they had to see him. And they had to know him. You see that, I think it's pretty clear right now, but I think you'll see it pretty clearly, even more clearly, as we get closer and closer to Easter. Because there's a whole lot of people that do not know what's going on. But they could if they'd open their eyes to what God was doing in this, in this guy. Who is this guy? He's the son of God. He's Lord of lords and king of kings. He's everything. Glory to God. I'd like you to turn to number 327. And while you're turning there, Father, I do pray, dear God, that you'll just truly touch our hearts, Lord, with this truth here today. Oh, glory be to God. We give you, we give you the glory. We give you the praise and the honor. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. We thank you that Jesus is who Jesus says he is. We need to see that. And everybody needs to see that. They're not truly going to know him until we see that. Glory be to God. I thank you, I praise you, and we love you, Lord. Hallelujah. Oh, the old rugged cross. 327 in your hymn book. 327.